Good morning. My name is Merle Flenner, and uh, I serve on the Elder Council, Council here at First Baptist. And uh, today we'll be reading from the scriptures in Luke 4, 31 through 44. And he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. And in the synagogue there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And, there, and they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands unclean spirits, and they come out. And reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. And he rose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever. And they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her, and immediately she rose and began to serve them. Now when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of, the son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak, because they knew that he was the Christ. And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose and he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. You may remain standing. No, I'm kidding. Sit down. <laughs> Messing with you. All right, be in your Bible. We'll be in Luke chapter 4, verses 31 through 44. You can make your way to you, that place in your copy of the Scripture or on your device. A couple of things to mention. Uh, number one, many of you knew Pauline Ruder. Pauline Ruder went home to be with the Lord this week, sadly, and we are grieved with her home going, and um, we will miss her and are grateful, though, that her suffering has ended and she is home with the Lord. We will have a memorial service for Pauline, so if you're able, we'd love to have you join us on March 19th. I think it's at 11 a.m., uh, but you can double-check um, at the church office as we get closer to that. But March 19th, Saturday, 11 a.m., we'll have a memorial service for uh, Pauline. Also, want to remind you, we have a couple of fish bowls on the platform up here. They have some cards in them and pens, and those are an opportunity for you. If you have prayer requests that you would like the people of FBC to be praying for, uh, there's also prayer groups that meet throughout the week, and they look forward to praying about the prayer requests that are submitted. I'd just like to remind you those are there. So if you have prayer requests that you'd like to share with us, feel free to come up before or after the service and uh, fill out a uh, prayer uh, prayer card. Also, we have this wonderful flower up here, which is an announcement uh, that uh, a baby was born. And so let me read this. Josiah and Caitlin Fast are uh, excited to announce, along with um, their, the brothers. This is the brothers of the, the new child, I should say. It's not Caitlin and Fast, Josiah's brothers. Ash and Rowan, they welcome their new, sis, new sister, Ember Rose, born March 3rd at 1.11 p.m., 8 pounds, 3 ounces, 20 in inches long. So we're grateful for God's blessing in the Fast family. Hey, we're clapping. Yeah, okay. Good job. Grateful 
for God's blessing uh, there. One last thing, there's an insert in there about some classes we're going to be doing, uh, an introduction to ancient Israel. The dates of the classes are on the back. Anybody is welcome to attend these classes, but you need to register with us. The charge is $1,000 per class. I'm kidding. That's, that's not even funny. Uh, it's free, uh, but if you register, it lets us know how much food to buy because uh, we're going to provide lunch. Uh, the classes are set up primarily for those of you who are signed up to join us in November for our trip to Israel. Uh, we do have a few spots left, but anybody can attend these classes if you're interested in learning about the places we're going to be visiting as we go over uh, to Israel. So make note of that in your calendars. Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 31. How much Jesus is enough? How much Jesus is enough? This is a question we want to answer in observing the activities and the uh, words of the people in this passage, but we want to also draw into our own hearts and answer that question for us when we think about Jesus and, and who He is and, and what He does. How much Jesus is is enough. And I want to think about it this way. When you buy a product, whether it be online or, or in a store, you're thinking, I, I got something I need done, and I need something that will get the job done. Whether it's a, a propane grill or a tool for your shop, a computer or a tablet or a, a new phone, you're going to choose the, the item that gets the job done and gets the job done reliably. You've got a certain price point you have in mind, a certain job you need to get, need to get done, and so you're going to identify, here's the thing that gets the job done that I need done. And what we're going to do is look at the life of Jesus here in this passage and recognize when we're sort of going to the store to buy Jesus, what is it that we want Him to get done for us, and how much is enough uh, for us, and then when you want to allow the, the Word of God to confront our notions here, so in verses 31 and 32, Jesus went down to Capernaum. I'm grateful for Jeff preaching the word so effectively last week. And last week, the events of the passage were in the city of Nazareth. The city of Nazareth is to the west of the, city, uh, of the Sea of Galilee. So from last week to this week, Jesus has made his way to the east, to the Sea of Galilee, and has made his way sort of to the northern part of the Sea of Galilee, where the city of Capernaum is, and it says he went down to the uh, city of Capernaum because it was, is lower in elevation. Uh, so it, it's a much lower in elevation place to be at the city of Capernaum than Nazareth. So he went down to Capernaum, which is right on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. And this is, he was teaching in the synagogue on the Sabbath on the Sabbath day. And he would have grabbed a copy of Scripture, and he would have read a Scripture, and he would have indicated what the passage was about, and then he would have taught the meaning of it and how it applied. And what the people observed about his teaching is really, really important. Notice what they said, and Merle read it, but we'll pay attention to it here. They were astonished at his teaching. His word possessed authority. They weren't used to how Jesus taught. They weren't used to this kind of teaching. Jesus was teaching as one who knew what he was talking about. There was a certain level of competency. He was well-informed. He was confident about what he was teaching about, but he was also teaching as somebody who was in charge. This isn't somebody who was teaching about somebody else or something else. This is teaching about somebody who understands it and comes from a place of authority. This wasn't just a matter of him having really good content, really good stories and illustrations. This wasn't that he just never said, um, or uh, never bungled his speech, uh, he never ran out of things to say. This was when he taught, people said, this guy is in charge. He's not checking in with anybody. He is explaining this from a place of authority. One of the best ways to observe what I'm talking about here is over in the Sermon on the Mount. We're not going to go through it this morning. It's too long. But Jesus took the law and helped people understand the law of the Old Testament was not a set of rules that you were to obey, it was a way of understanding what God was like and analyzing our own heart. He says things like this, the, the law says you shouldn't murder. Well, that's a rule. And what he said, well, no, what, I'm at, what the law is actually trying to tell you to do is not to hate your brother. There's, it's a heart issue the law was getting at. 
And for the people of Israel, this was a mind-blowing thing. That Wait, I thought it was just a list of rules. You go, no, the rules are there to reveal what's going on in your heart, to reveal what God is like. And then when you expose your own heart to what God is like, you're supposed to go, wait, I'm not like God. Something's wrong with me. And this is how Jesus was teaching authority. Law is understanding what God is like and how I'm not like God. It's not merely behavior. It's not merely how do you do a worship. It is something that is to explain to us what God is like. And the people of the synagogue were like, wow, this is, this is authoritative. This is somebody who should be, should be listened to. And that's always nice when you're listening to somebody speaking and you actually want to listen to them. And they were sort of excited about that. Wow, this is great. Then it, it got, sort of goes next level here. Somebody gets up, and in the synagogue, there was a man who was a, possessed by a, a demon. That's kind of, kind of strange. Of course, it's very, very disruptive. Some things about p- demon possession we might need to keep in mind. Number one, in those days... There was a common understanding of demon possession. In our Western culture, there is a natural aversion to recognizing the immaterial and spiritual. And you say, what do you mean there's an aversion to it? People get weirded out when you talk about the immaterial or the, the spiritual. And you say, well, how do you, how do you figure that? Well, you, it's okay to talk about angels like at Christmas time. It's, it's okay to, to recognize that there are spiritual things during, during sort of Christian holidays on the calendar, but all the other time, most of our culture says, knock it off. All that can be known can be seen and touched. But in these days, it was commonly understood that there is a spiritual realm, and there is a good element to that, angels, and an evil element to that, demons. Demons are merely angels that God had created that rebelled against God along with Satan. That's all it is, just demons who rebelled against God. And these demons have the ability and power, according to the Scripture, to sort of possess people. That is, mean cause influence, evil influence. They didn't have people's good in mind. And here you have a demon who is possessing a person in some way, influencing them in, in some way, and this person cries out. So the demon, using the the person's vocal cords and mouth, cries out, Ha! What do you have to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? So what just happened in Nazareth? That's Jesus' hometown. Anybody here last week? Jeff talked about it. After after Jesus shared his uh, truth with the people of Nazareth, they held a parade, right? The parade ended at a cliff. And they were going to chuck him off. Of course, they couldn't because it wasn't his time. So the demon immediately brings up for Jesus, hey, guess what your hometown thinks of you? They want you dead. And then he's bringing up in front of the people of Capernaum, certainly you've heard the news about this Jesus. You think he's so fancy? His own hometown wants to kill him, and you're impressed with this guy? So the demon here is not merely saying, Oh, Jesus, who was born in Nazareth, he is trying to once again remind Jesus and the hearers, this guy's a nobody. He's born in Nazareth. I mean, if the people of Nazareth want to kill you, how bad are you? Because Nazareth was not a, a town with a high reputation. Then the demon says this, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. So this is an affirmation that Jesus doesn't need. Who does Jesus need affirmation from? No one. When he was baptized by John, the Father affirmed, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. And the Holy Spirit descended on him like a dove. Jesus, the Son, God in the flesh, working alongside and with the Father and Spirit to bring the kingdom of God to people who would have it by faith, does not need anybody to affirm his ministry. He's going to do his thing because the Father has sent him to do his thing, and he's going to do his thing by the power of the Spirit in obedience to the Father. So he doesn't need this affirmation, and he also knows most people are going to say, what kind of guy has demons extolling him? You know, if you write a new book, a lot of times you will get people on the back to write recommendations for the book. And usually you want people to write on the back things about your book that will make it sell more. 
So if you write a book on Christian living, and on the back you say, this is a great book, signed, the father of hell, Satan himself. Who's going to buy that book? Some people are, just because they're going to find that weird. But that's what's happening here. The last thing Jesus really wants or needs at all is the demons affirming his ministry, because that's not the kind of affirmation you need. Not that he really cares one way or the other, but he's not going to have this happen. So Jesus, having been teaching with authority, now says to the demon with authority, be silent and come out of him. When the demon threw the guy down, he came out of him, doing him no harm. So Jesus speaks to this demon, and the demon obeys. Why does the demon obey? Because Jesus is in charge. Because Jesus has authority. He doesn't merely speak as one with authority. Anybody can sort of learn to pantomime and act like they have confidence and authority. Jesus doesn't merely act like one with authority. Jesus actually has authority because he is creator of all that is. And the demon recognizes that and understands that. So when Jesus gives him a command, he must and does obey. He comes out of the man, and the man is set free. Jesus' authority here, and the people recognize this in their amazement, it's more than just good theology. It's more than just good speaking ability. Jesus, as God in the flesh, has complete and total authority over all that, is, all that exists, both material and spiritual. Jesus has total authority over all that exists, both material and spiritual. And the people are amazed at what they saw. That's what it says, verse 36. They were all amazed. They said to each other, what is this word? How is this possible? His authority and power commands unclean spirits. They weren't used to this. When he commands unclean spirits, they come out. And the reports spread all around. This amazement, the way that this amazement is expressed here, is an amazement with a sense of wariness. So it's both amazed, this is, this is cool, this is incredible. On the other hand, well, we're not sure about this. And maybe you've had that feeling if you've ever gone to a very large natural wonder with a lot of power, like if you're standing right next to a very large waterfall, and you're, and you're near it on a cliff, and you're standing and looking at it, you're like, wow, this is so cool, and there are so many different ways it could kill me. And that, that's kind of their wariness here. And this is where I want us to reflect on this question. How much Jesus is enough? Is powerful Jesus enough? Jesus taught with authority. Jesus had authority over the spiritual realm as expressed in casting out demons. He has power over the, the material realm. And people were impressed with him. And people were uh, inspired by him and motivated by him. In fact, they were amazed by the displays of his power. Are we satisfied with Jesus who is merely powerful, or are we willing, as we're going to see here in a minute, willing to recognize Jesus as king? And this is where they're starting to get wary. Because what they want and what they are desiring is a powerful Jesus that isn't so powerful that he won't do what they want. People want a Jesus powerful enough to solve our problems, yet weak enough to get the job done and not meddle in my life. That's what we want. If you go to the store and you buy a drill and it gets the job done, last thing you need it doing is lecturing you about your lifestyle choices. You're like, that's in your job drill. Well, that's what they want with Jesus. We want you to give us inspiring and motivating messages. We want you to cast out demons from time to time, a little smoke and mirrors, a little magic show at church isn't bad, right? Keep us excited, keep us thrilled, but let's make sure you stay out of our business. We want a, a Jesus who is powerful enough to get the job done, but stays out of our, our life. The reason, uh, what we call this, I don't know if I should say this. I was debating on this, but of course, when I bring it up now, I have to because you'd be curious, right? We have a phrase for this. It's sort of an idiom. We call it a, a useful idiot. A useful idiot is somebody who is really good at getting something done, but they're gullible enough that we can get them to do it. 
for us, either at a low cost or no cost. That's what we want from God. We want Jesus to be a useful idiot. We want to show up and get the job done that we know needs to get done and then be dumb enough not to expect anything from us. That's what we want. And that's what the people of Capernaum are wanting. We've got power here. How do we keep it in check? There's some wariness there. Here's what we're going to find out here in a minute. Jesus is more than we can handle. He's not a useful idiot. His signs have an intentional purpose, and we're going to get to that here in a minute. But what we want to confront ourselves with the same question that the people of Capernaum were answering is, how much Jesus is enough? Are we okay with just a powerful Jesus, or are we willing to recognize he actually is king? Creator of all that is, in charge of everything. Jesus was a great speaker. He was inspirational. He was motivational. He was powerful. But there's other people who might say this, but you know what? I need him to actually show up in power where life really matters. Like when people are sick. You know, it's great that Jesus is motivating me when, I go to go, when I'm going to work. I need a little boost to my spiritual life. But you know what? Sometimes you get sick and you need somebody to make things better. And that's where we're going here. Verse 38, Jesus got up out of the synagogue and went to Simon Peter's house. Simon's mother-in-law was ill with fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf. I, I think it's interesting here who appealed to Jesus on her behalf. They appealed to him on her behalf. Where's Peter? You don't get it. It's his mother-in-law. It's like, no, she's fine. She'll get better. <laughs> I'm kidding. That's terrible. I'm sure Peter was very concerned about his mother-in-law's condition. Jesus stood over her and rebuked the fever, and, and it left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve them. And then this is going to move into a massive healing event happening at this home. There's, two kind, there's several kinds of celebrities that you might think about. We're going to look at Jesus in this, how well he is known here in a minute. But there are people you see on the street that you, the next time you see a friend of yours, you say, hey, guess who I saw at the store? I saw so-and-so. So they're well-known enough that you would mention them. You say, oh, they're playing, uh, they're playing at the Criterion this weekend. Do you want to go see them? Oh, no, no. I only bring them up because I know they're well-known, but I'm not interested in actually uh, seeing them. There's other people you might see in public that you say, boy, I'd kind of like to go see what they do, either at the, at the sporting arena or at the, at the theater or whatever they might do. Then there's other people that you will drop everything and flood with a horde of people to see if you can pack in and see them. And that's what Jesus is here in this moment. All of a sudden, there are hordes of people flocking in to see Jesus because Jesus is a healing Jesus. Everybody that showed up at Simon Peter's house, he put his hands on them, and they got better. Everybody. All kinds of th people who were coming with all kinds of... Th the sun was setting. It was getting late. Anyone who were sick, various diseases... He would lay his hands on them, and they would get better. People with fevers, leprosy, blind people, all kinds of stuff. There's so many various diseases, it doesn't even tell us what all the diseases are. And Jesus, all of a sudden, is healing everybody who shows up. And could you imagine once word got out? I mean, everybody's coming over. Because they know all I got to do is walk in, he puts hands on them, and they, and they get better. Simon's mother-in-law shows a perfect example of what, this, uh, of what a response looks like. Uh, after she was healed, she got up and began to serve them because she recognized who Jesus is and as an act of worship wanted to serve those who were with him and Jesus. And the people were flocking to them for uh, healing. Why was Jesus healing people? Why was Jesus casting out demons? Because he wanted sick people to get better? Yes, Jesus actually cares about people. Pay attention to this. Jesus was laying his hands on each person that he healed. Did Jesus have to lay his hands on people to heal them? No, he didn't. Did Jesus have to be in the same room as somebody to heal them? No, he didn't. Did Jesus have to be in the same city? No, these all happened in, in the Gospels. One guy got healed. He was far away. So Jesus was touching and healing them as an act of compassion 
and concern for them. So he was concerned for them, but, but that wasn't the primary reason why he was, was healing them. What was the primary reason why Jesus was healing and casting out demons? So they would know he's the Messiah. John the Baptist, when he was prisoned, started having some doubts. That's hard to believe, but John the Baptist had some doubts. He sent his disciples to Jesus and said, Ask Jesus, are you the one that was promised or should I look for somebody else? And Jesus told John the Baptist's disciples, look at what I'm doing. The blind are, uh, receive sight. The lame walk. The sick are healed. Demons are cast out. And the good news is preached to the poor. Go and tell John what you see. And they would have gone and reported to John. And John would say, oh, I've read my Old Testament. That's what the Messiah does. The reason Jesus was healing people The reason Jesus was casting out demons was not merely that people would feel better, but so they would see what he is doing and say, wait, this guy's the Messiah. Verse 41, demons also came out of many crying, you are the son of God. Again, this is an endorsement that he doesn't really want or need, and he rebuked each of them as they were cast out. The demons see more about Jesus than the people being healed do. The demons see the Christ. People see a low-cost healer. How much Jesus is enough? Is a healing Jesus enough for us? Jesus healed instantly, and people flocked to him. Jesus cast out demons, and the demons understood what most people missed. Jesus is the Son of God. He is the King of all that is. Jesus made what is, the world and all that is in it. He made what we see and what we cannot see, and he is the King of all that is. There is not one place in all of creation where Jesus is not in charge with total and complete authority. Jesus is powerful. Jesus is a healer. And Jesus is authoritative. The question is, would we be totally satisfied with Jesus who merely teaches well, heals when, when is convenient, casts out demons? Will that do for us? Or are we also looking for a king? How much Jesus is enough? Powerful Jesus, healing Jesus, or will we take him for what he actually is, King Jesus? Look at verses 42, 43, and 44. When it was daytime, he got together a PR team to figure out how he could expand on the leverage. I'm kidding, he didn't do any of that. When it was day, he departed and went to a desolate place. When it was dead, it doesn't say he slept. I don't know if he slept. If he slept, it wasn't much because he was healing into the evening. When it was morning, he went to a desolate place. We'll learn like next week, but we'll look at it briefly here in Luke 5.16. It says this, he would withdraw to desolate places and what? And pray. So we understand Jesus is withdrawing to a desolate place because he's in prayer. Why would Jesus be praying? If Jesus is the Son of God, King of the universe, why in the world would Jesus need to pray to the Father? Here's a really strange notion for most of us, including myself. Jesus wanted to talk to the Father because he liked to talk to the Father. That was an enjoyable experience for the son. That was an enjoyable, engaging opportunity for the son. There's another reason Jesus wanted to pray. It's because he was on mission to do the work of the father, and close and ongoing contact with the father was fundamentally necessary. That he might, just as we need to do, depend completely on the father for his power and his direction. Back in Deuteronomy, Moses wrote to the people of Israel in the wilderness. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, he said, 
Here in the wilderness, God has watched over us. Our shoes haven't worn out, our clothes haven't worn out, and we've never run out of manna. Yay, manna. And they have had to seek the Lord day in and day out to be sustained. When you get into the promised land and you have a house you didn't build and a cistern you didn't dig and a vineyard you didn't plant and you have more food than you could ever hope for, don't forget the Lord. So what happens in Israel, same thing happens with us. We pray like crazy when the wheels have come off and our life is falling apart. And then when everything comes back together, our prayer becomes something like, I think my favorite one, rub-a-dub-dub, thanks for the grub. See, you didn't know you'd learn anything today. Look at it. Some of you go, this is good stuff. Rub-a-dub. I'm not going to repeat it. All of a sudden, our prayer becomes really small. Jesus here, on the other hand, shows us what this ought to look like. His ministry is blowing up. Everything's going the way everybody would have ever dreamed. People are flocking to him. What does he need God for? Number one, he wants God more than he wants those people. Secondly, he knows he is always depending on the Father because he has come in obedience to the Father. Look at John chapter 2, verses 23 and 25. This helps us get a little insight into Jesus' mind. Now, when he was in Jerusalem, that is Jesus, at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people, and he needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Jesus needed the Father and connection with the Father more than he needed those crowds, more than he needed all those people flocking to him. We discover in Jesus departing to desolate places to seek the Father Jesus has a different plan in mind than most people thought. Most of us would have thought getting a big following, getting a big crowd, making a movement is the goal. And Jesus has a different plan. He has a a better plan than these people have in mind. What is that plan? Verses 43 and 44 of Luke 4. Here it is. He said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose, and he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. That means he's all over the place, preaching in the synagogues. Jesus says, here's my purpose. I'm going to preach the good news of the kingdom. Here's how this works. What's the good news of the kingdom? It's not complicated. You know what it is. Jesus comes here and says, you're all sinners. All of you are sinners. When did he say that? He had a guy come and tell everybody. His name was John the Baptist. His baptism was a baptism of repentance from sin. So he tells everybody, you're a sinner. You need to repent of your sin. You need forgiveness. So what he is going to do, that is Jesus, is die on the cross as a substitute and pay the penalty for the sin of everyone who would believe in him. Then He is going to rise from the dead, and all who trust Jesus for forgiveness will also raise from the dead with Jesus one day. Good news of the kingdom. Anyone, Jew or Gentile, that's what Jeff talked about last week with Naaman the Syrian, even the Gentiles who believe get in on this, and the Jews didn't like that. Jew and Gentile, anyone who trusts in Jesus has their sins forgiven, And they receive eternal life and one day will be raised from the dead with Jesus. Jesus, this is my purpose. All of the healings of Jesus were at best temporary. Simon Peter's mother-in-law is dead. Unless you've met her, I don't know. All of those people that he healed all that night are dead. Even the people he raised from the dead, Lazarus, the little girl on the beer, dead. All of his healings, all of his help. How would you feel if you got healed from a great fever? I don't know what happened to Simon Peter's mother-in-law, but let's imagine. She gets healed. She's serving dinner. A week later, she trips and breaks her leg. What's she going? Well, I thought I was immune. I thought I was never going to get sick again. No, he, Jesus' healing was, 
was designed to show who he is. So Jesus comes with good news. I've got, I've got an idea. What if, what if you never had to be healed? What would you think of that? What if you live forever? What if you live for, forever with the righteousness of God and in God's presence? Is that better news than a temporary healing? Yeah, yeah it is. Except when you have a fever of 104 degrees. Then all you want is to stop being sick. So Jesus had a purpose that was better than healing, better than miracles, better than casting out demons. He had a goal of giving eternal life to all who would believe and defeating Satan and death on the cross and the open tomb. See how he's got a much bigger plan. The people of Capernaum were perfectly happy with a powerful healer. And Jesus said, that's not what I'm here for. I've got a bigger thing going on than people getting over their sniffles. I want to give you eternal life. Here's the question I have for you. This is going to annoy you, but that's my gift to you. What if all Jesus offered was eternal life? Let me explain. What if the way the Bible is worded, now there's a hypothetical, don't freak out on me. Well, freak out a little, but not a lot. What if the Bible says, okay, if you want to get saved, here's the deal. And that's how it would say it. You, you receive salvation by, by faith in Jesus. Now, once you're saved, you're good to go. Thumbs up, eternal life, yay. But there is no benefit to you being a Christian until the resurrection. No answered prayer. No healing. All you do, you get saved and you just buckle down. I got, I got to make it through. What if the only thing Jesus offered was after you die, you live forever, raised from the dead? The question is this, would you still take him? Would you, would you take Jesus if there was no benefit to him today? If, and the only benefit was there. That's a, is that tough? Of course, well, we, of course we say, well, no, I accept, I just want Jesus for who he is. And that's, but a part of the deal is, well, no, what? I want to get better when I pray. And, and when, I'm, when I'm short of funds, I want to pray and, and God provides. And when, when people are mad at me, I want to pray and they realize they're wrong. I mean, this isn't that hard. Now, by God's grace, these things are true. But we need to also think about the, the work of God in our life today. When God pours out on our life blessing, why does he do that? To tell us what he's like. So when God answers your prayer and gives you exactly what you prayed for, it's not just so you can have the thing. It's so you, wait, I've got Jesus. He's better than that. And then when you pray and he says no, and then takes away what little you had. The book of Hebrews tells us that's him drawing us into dependence. Everything he does in our life, whether we would call it good or bad, is intended to draw us closer to him and to love Jesus more for that day. Because whatever prayer is answered today or not answered today, at best it's temporary. Because until the resurrection, we're going to keep doing memorials. I don't like having them any more than you do, but until that day, all healing is just for now. Jesus had a bigger plan in mind. How about eternal life where you spend forever with me? How much Jesus do you want? Do you just want Jesus who will take care of your problems this week? Well, that's not enough Jesus. Jesus comes with a bigger plan to save you from your sin and have you live forever with him in glory. There was one guy in the Bible who had no benefit to his life with Christ whatsoever. Now, his life was short. There's a thief on the cross. Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, will you remember me? And Jesus said, I'll be with you today in paradise. That's bad news for you, bro. His answer to your faithful prayer was not, you're going to come off your cross and live a victorious life. It was, you're going to die slower than me. They're going to break your legs. I'm going to be, Jesus was dead long before those thieves on the cross. That, that Jesus' uh, work in the thief on the cross life provided no, I mean, the nails didn't hurt less. His lungs filled with fluid wasn't less constricting. 
He wasn't suddenly surrounded by birds chirping and flowers growing out of his cross. It was just, hold on, the time's coming and I'm going to be with Jesus. That's what I need. Now, we don't have to live a life of misery by God's grace, but we do need to recognize how much Jesus do we want? Do we want just enough, like we're buying Jesus on Amazon? You know, I I need Jesus to kind of hook me up with some some dollar bills, Joe, when I got a bill due, and and I need a a little Jesus to make me feel better when I got a fever, and and I need a Jesus with a good return policy, so if he starts to meddle, if he starts to ask questions about how I live my life, whoa, whoa, I'm going to return that to Amazon. They've got a drop thing at Kohl's, I think. You can just take it in, you know, I got this Jesus, and I think it's broken. He keeps asking me what I'm doing. Keeps yammering on about glorifying him with a life of righteousness, walking by the Spirit. Ugh, I just need a healing. If you don't want King Jesus, you don't want Jesus. Over in John chapter 6, we're going to transition to taking communion together. I want to begin this by reading some words of Jesus in John chapter 6, beginning in verse 47. I'm going to read quite a bit. You can follow along with me. It's some of the most offensive things that Jesus has said. Truly, truly, I say to you, this Jesus speaking, whoever believes has eternal life. That's good news. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that no one, excuse me, so that the one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, he was worried they weren't adequately offended yet. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. Just to remind you, there was a complete prohibition against the consuming of blood in the Old Testament law. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Not like the bread the fathers ate and died, whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum, same place we're at over in Luke. So what Jesus is describing, it wasn't cannibalism, no one ever consumed Jesus' flesh, even the disciples who were alive at that time. What he was saying was, this is complete and total dependence on me for your life. Just like the people of Israel depended on the manna every day to live, what Jesus wants us to recognize is he is king where we need total and complete dependence on him for our life, to be sustained spiritually and physically. How did people respond down in verse 66? This is how it continues. I don't think I put this part up on the screens. After many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him, so that's how that was received, Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know you are the Holy One of God. Exactly what demons had been saying. Peter wasn't rebuked. Peter gets it now. At least he's heading that direction. Jesus, I will take you if it means I get nothing else. If it means nothing else between now and my grave, if I get you, I'm good. 
Peter finally was getting his head around it. I don't need Jesus to heal me. I don't need Jesus to cast out demons with power. I don't need Jesus to inspire me with motivational speeches. I need, I need King Jesus to give me eternal life. And if there's no benefit between here and the hereafter, so be it. I'll take King Jesus. When we grab our cups, we're going to worship by recognizing what Peter said. I would recommend opening the bread side first, and then opening the. Uh, whoa! It was. It was closed. And then opening the juice side. I'm going to turn over to First Corinthians and connect something we see in First Corinthians with what Peter had to share as a way of responding. How much Jesus is enough? Do you want a powerful Jesus, healing Jesus, or will you take King Jesus? 1 Corinthians eleven twenty seven says this, Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be con- guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat the bread and drink of the cup. Anyone who... Uh, eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. What Peter recognized when Jesus gave the illustration of eating his flesh and drinking his blood, what Peter realized is, I need all of Jesus. I need King Jesus, Lord Jesus, Creator Jesus, Redeemer Jesus, Healer Jesus, Provider I need the whole thing. I'm not going to pick and choose which part of Jesus seems to tickle my fancy. And by eating and drinking the cup, we're saying, I need Jesus. I need every bit of him, all he is. I need him to call into question my thinking and motivation. I need him to bring conviction for the sin in my life. I do need him to provide. And I need him for eternal life. We would take the bread and take the cup and we consume it together it's a way of recognizing complete and depend, total dependence on Christ for our life. All we are now and all we will be for all of a, eternity. And eating and drinking in an unworthy manner is a way of saying, I've got most of my life handled. I just need G- Jesus to knock off the rough edges. Because consuming the cup and the bread together is a way of saying, I need Jesus. I can't make it another day without him. What I want to do is give us an opportunity here in a few moments of quiet prayer and reflection to come before the Lord. Maybe there's a time of repentance and confession for you and saying, Lord, I've been sort of picking and choosing which parts of Jesus I want. Open my eyes to the fact that you are God and you are King. There's a time to come before the Lord in gratefulness for his forgiveness as well as recognizing that our life is forfeit. Without him. So let's take a few minutes to uh, pray in, in quiet. In a moment, I will uh, close in prayer with a prayer of gratitude for the bread in the cup. And then after that, I'll read some more scripture before we take uh, the bread and cup together. Why don't we take a moment now and seek the Lord in prayer? God, we want to thank you for Jesus. We want to thank you that in our sin and rebellion, you took the initiative to make a way for us to have our relationship with you restored. God, we are grateful that even in our rebellion against you, you sought reconciliation with us. We thank you that Jesus lived his life perfectly with no sin. 
and was obedient even to the point of death on a cross. And God, we give you praise because Jesus is not dead. He rose from the grave, completely defeating sin, death, and the devil. God, we are grateful that all you do is ask us to do is trust you. Trust what you say about us, that without Jesus, we are lost in our sin and rebellion. And when we trust Jesus, we receive forgiveness by your grace. God, I would pray that you would move in our hearts even today to trust you for forgiveness. God, we also confess openly that we just want you to fit into the nooks and crannies of life that we can't seem to figure out. God, would you help us to see that you are God. You are King and you are Lord. You are not here merely to fix the temporary difficult stresses we face in this life. You came to give us life eternal. We thank you for this bread, which is a symbol of Jesus' body, which was broken, taking on himself the punishment that we should have received. And we thank you for this cup, which is a symbol of Jesus' blood, wherein we have a covenant from you, a promise that all who trust Jesus receive forgiveness of sin. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, when he had given thanks he broke it, and he said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's eat and drink together.